Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 6 and focusing on verses 5 and 6. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you've called us to this place at this time. We pray now your blessing upon the preaching and hearing of the word, that it will not return void, that you will call people to yourself, call us to further um, adherence to your word, a better understanding of grace, a better understanding of what's, uh, what you, you call us to do in this life. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you more, to love you more, and that we'd see more of yourself in the gospel through your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? The word of the Lord. So if you look at just this beginning, we're in the section of, it's called a, um, the, um, some, oh, what's the word? We're in the didactic, now we're in the imperatives, where they're telling us, uh, the Lord is telling us through the writer of Hebrews, um, some things that we should be doing, attitudes we should have, the way we should operate within the church, and keeping this in context, um, it's under uh, persecution. And if you look at verse 1, brotherly love, and this is where a little bit of Greek is okay. Philadelphia, that's the city of brotherly love. Philos and Delphos, that's brothers and love. So it's Philadelphia. We're supposed to love the brothers. And then we're also supposed to have Philozenius, and that's the love of strangers. So a xenophobe is somebody who is you know, afraid of or hates um, strangers, people are, who are aliens outside of your immediate culture. But we're told to love those people. We're, we're to be Philozanius, so we're to be Philadelphia, we're supposed to be Philozanius. And now here in verse 5, it actually has the same word, Philargurus. Oh, let me get this right. Philargurus. Philargurus. That means the love of money. But there's a little ah in front of it, and that's a prefix, and that's a, called the alpha privative. Man, you guys are getting so much information that may not be. But it's got this word ah in front of it. It means don't be or not. So ah, philoguros, philoguros. There we go. Ah, philoguros. Don't be lovers of money. Be not lovers of money. Don't love money. So you're supposed to love your neighbor. And so the, the language that Paul uses, we're supposed to kind of pick up on, on this, or the author of Hebrews, whether it be Paul or someone else. Um, love brothers, love strangers. Remember those who are in prison uh, and those who are being persecuted. Don't love money. And that's interesting how that gets thrown right in there. Um, 
and I have to get this out of the way because we have to quote Pink Floyd, which is money, money, money. <laughs> so they say, is the root of all evil today. But if you ask for a rise, which is a raise, but if you ask for a rise, it's no surprise that they're giving none away. So it's a popular saying, uh, money is the root of all evil. So you know, one of the ways that you can share the gospel or you can you know, correct people theologically, but do so in love, is to say, eh, that's not exactly right. The Bible doesn't say the money is the root of all evil. The Bible says, 1 Timothy 6, and we're going to look at it in a bit, the love of money, philogrugas, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So love of money is a root. That means it's something that's giving life to all kinds of evil. And the Bible talks about money so much that it's hard to know how to properly address the subject. So we sort of just take, well, we take our text here as the starting point and this aspect of money that we're looking at in this context is don't be a lover of money. So we're going to start with that. Don't love it. Don't be a lover of money. So what does it mean to love money? Now, even that word philogrugos, argurus, uh, uh, means shiny things or silver. It actually literally is don't be a lover of silver. But in this context, it's talking about money as a, as a uh, medium of exchange. Don't be in love with it. These little shiny things that can give you so much and give you power and have people adore you. Um, of course, the Beatles remind us money can't buy, buy me love. But it's an interesting song. He's sort of interesting for very wealthy people to sing such things. Charles Dickens writes <coughs> Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, and we have a pretty good image in our mind of what like a miserly Scrooge of a person is, loving money and the accumulation of money and could care less about people. People can get in the way of this so that um, in A Christmas Carol, what you see is um, Dickens trying to make a point about what Christianity is supposed to be, how Christmas should be about Christ and giving and um, thinking of others is more important than yourself. But Scrooge has fallen in love with money so much that he just, he's become that terrible, nasty person. And this is what the Bible tells us can happen. But we don't see ourselves as Scrooge. Typically, we might sometimes recognize a little bit of that about ourselves. Most of us see ourselves as thrifty, uh, looking for a bargain, um, generous enough to people who deserve it, and I don't want to be taken advantage of. We need our money. We earned it. We deserve it in some way. So some of us are, are better at the way we look at money than other people. But wealth and poverty is a relative thing. So when you say, well, I'm not wealthy, compared to who? Compared to any other time in history of the world, we live as kings beyond imagination. When I was uh, in school at the University of South Carolina, the, uh, it was in a, in a class, and they said, um, I think it was an economics class or something, raise your hand. Don't do this in here, but this is what they said in this class of like 300 college students. Raise your hand if you think that you're in the, as far as um, economically, that you believe you're in the upper class economically. And a few hands went up. That was back in the day when it wasn't evil. A few hands went up, 
and then says, how many of you believe you're in the lower class economically? And, you know, a few hands go up. It's like, all right, how many of you believe you're in the middle class? Almost every hand goes up. And he says, okay, let me read this to you. <laughs> Numerically, upper class is from this amount of money to that amount. Lower class is from this amount to that amount. And middle class is here. How many of you believe you're in the upper class? No hands went up. How many of you believe you're in the middle class? Not as many hands went up. How many of you are in the lower class, according to these numbers? And almost every hand went up. And we're like, what? We're all in the lower class economically? I mean, we were at the University of South Carolina for a reason. Don't you use that against me. I was just kidding. <laughs> but it's all relative. People, you think, you know, what makes you think, unless you're looking at actual numbers, where you are in relation to other people? Um, or, and then we look at other people too. We judge people based on the things they have and you might not know how much money they have based on the stuff they have. We know that somebody can have great um, <clears throat> houses, cars, all this uh, clothes, all these sorts of things and they're in so much debt that they're just struggling to even know how they're going to get through tomorrow. Then you have somebody else that just dresses like a slob, that uh, drives a car that, that just is about to fall apart, and their house is nothing to brag about or anything, and you know they have millions of dollars in the bank. And they're afraid to spend it on anything. I'm always amazed at these movies or TV shows, I guess, or real life people, but where somebody is doing an illegal activity and they're, they're amassing so much wealth that it's They'll never be able to spend it all. And they can't spend it because if they do, it'll draw attention to them. And so they have to live as if they don't have any money. And I'm like, then what do you, how do you, <laughs> so what ends up happening is it's just the allure of the challenge of the accumulation of money, even if I can't spend it. I just, you fall in love with it. You become enamored with it. Anything you spend a whole lot of time with and thinking about and depending on more and more and more, all of a sudden, there's a love affair with it. And anybody gets between you and your lover, mm, that can be problematic. And that's what the Bible is telling us here that we have to be careful of in the church. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, those who love money will never have enough. That's sad. <laughs> you think about it, I love money. Well, you never have enough of it. It's like a curse. It's like you, you, you wish to the genie. I want, uh, I want all, the, all the money I can. I, I want to love money. Oh, I can't think of a wish. It's like you want all the money you can have, and, and the answer is, well, you can have more and more money, but the more money I give you, the more you're going to want. You're never going to be satisfied with it. I mean, it's a curse to be given something that you love, and you can't ever, you'll never be satisfied with it. Let me read the direct quote. Those who love money will never have enough. So what does it mean for those who don't love money? And, and what's enough? And there's the famous answer of the rich person, and how much money is enough? And he's like, another dollar, another dollar. You know, a little bit more than what I currently have is always the need for more. And it's also very easy if we're talking about money to fall into moralism because economics is a moral issue. I think people need to be more aware of this. It's increasingly in our world, it used to be all these different things you needed to be well versed in in order to um, <clears throat> debate the atheists or agnostics in our world. 
and um, increasingly economics is something we need to be well versed in and because it is a moral issue and Satan is hard at work in our country through this issue how should we think of, of wealth how should we think and it's not just material possessions unless you think of money as a material possession because a lot of people you know think about why do you want money well it's so I can buy things okay why do you want these things and for some people it's like so I can use those things to make more money you know or I can these things are going to bring me so you have materialism which means I'm in love with the world's goods the world's things but you can have the love of money too which is just about the accumulation I want to be able to get more I want to be able to have more I want to have the ability and that's what money represents at some is it's the ability to do it gives you more freedom to be able to do things. I can go here, I can go there, I can take this, I can do that. You just have, you know, a certain amount of power that comes with this. So, we'll be careful not to fall into moralism. If you look at, uh, keep your place here in, in Hebrews, and uh, look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm just going to read it when I find it. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we have to really see, if we just say, okay, what does the Bible say about money? <laughs> that's a, that's a, it's a class, it's books, this is a, too large of a, of a subject. So we have to say, what is the author of Hebrews telling us about money in this context? And what does he want us to know um, for our church today, even through this? So in context, in Hebrews, we have to ask ourselves that we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we've gone through Hebrews. We've spent uh, we've, all the way up to chapter 13 now. We've been in Hebrews for uh, several months now. Has there been any transformation that's taken place in us through the preaching of the word in Hebrews? And you might say, well, I can't really remember in particular sermons. I can't remember a particular thing that maybe stood out and changed my life. Maybe you can. But it's been compared to like a, um, used to take typing or a keyboarding or something now. I guess you just use your thumbs most of the time now. But, you know, you might not remember a particular class, but at the end of the time, look at there, I can type. Or there's Joyce over there. You might not remember a particular piano lesson you had, but after a while, it's like, look at there, I can play. You know, it's like all of a sudden, there's things seep in, language classes, things like this. So the Bible is like this. Church is like this. It's not necessarily the individual things that you've learned, but it's the things that you've learned over time that continue to get into your heart and your mind you put into practice and after a while it's transforming the way you even think about things and we're to do that particularly in the means of grace that we have as we gather together also in the middle of our preaching not quite in the middle but after we began going through hebrews covid happened 
And so we are in this book, providentially, I didn't pick this because, hey, this is a good one for our particular time. I actually chose Hebrews because I was going to go to Revelation and I decided, uh, I don't want to go there yet. I mean, let's do Hebrews because both books elevate Jesus Christ so highly and so fo in a focused way. And so that's why I wanted to go to Hebrews because of the focused manner in which it uh, approaches Jesus Christ. But I, I knew about it but didn't realize as much about it <clears throat> is that it's written, it focuses on Christ because it's written to a church that needs to be focused on Christ because the world is attacking it. It is under persecution from its, the neighbors, the world. It's under persecution from religion, the Jewish non-believers, and it was under persecution from the government. Um, Nero and the, the, the Roman government um, really cracking down more and more and more on believers. And so they're fighting against this. Then the fight is to remain in the faith, to remain in the church, to remain a Christ follower. That was the fight. And so in the midst of this, love your brothers. <laughs> love outsiders. Don't forget those who are in prison in context because of the faith. Don't forget those who have been mistreated because of the faith, particularly. And then it's telling them to be careful about loving money. And so this is how you respond in the midst of persecution. This is how you respond in the midst of, of trials that might would say, I need to maybe lay low from this church thing for a while. And it's easy to fall in all sorts of errors. I can worship God by myself. I can read the Bible by myself. I don't need to go to church. I can do it. Okay, whatever. We're told to go to church. We're told to gather together. We're told this is where the sacraments take place. And this is where we're supposed to be. And then we're also told here in Hebrews who Jesus is. He's a prophet. He's greater than Moses. He's higher than the angels. He's God's own son. He's our great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's the creator of all things. He secured our eternal redemption with his very own blood. He forgives our sins. And we've been given faith in the Holy Spirit and the church so that we might have endurance for this world. And then he tells us in this section in Hebrews these things that we're called to do. Particularly, don't love money. Now look at Hebrews 10, beginning of verse 32. Because those with the greatest affection for wealth would be some of the first people who would turn aside when persecution begins to threaten their wealth. But they'd already suffered loss. So Hebrews 10, verse 32. You recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you had yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. You are in need of endurance. So they've already suffered the plundering of their property. And they did it well. He says, you, you endured the suffering of your property, knowing that you had a better possession and an abiding one. So why does he now tell them, don't love money? They sort of had demonstrated that they didn't. But you can have the plundering of your property 
and you can endure it. But you know when something happens, it's not like, all right, on to the next, next thing now. There is now life that continues without that property. There is life that continues. You know, suddenly you don't have what you used to have, and that's all right, I can deal with it. All right, give you a few months into this, and let's see how you do. And then you have to say, I really kind of wish I could get back all that wealth I had. Imagine if you had a million dollars and you lost it. Or if all you had before was like $10 and you lost it. Now the guy that has a million dollars that loses 10, he's not going to notice it. The guy has 10, he loses 10, he's going to search all night for it. But somebody that loses a million versus somebody that loses the 10, it's going to be a harder thing to deal with because your lifestyle has now drastically been affected so that the love of money can cause you to turn back to go after it. So we really have to ask ourselves how many of you have never really committed yourself to Christ completely because you love your money. And you might not even think about it like that. What maybe keeps you from following Christ completely because you love money or your current life situation you love too much or at least the financial aspect of your life that enables you to live the way you do and I'm not going to suggest to you that Jesus is telling you to give all your money away but what if he did would you do it would you be able to do it could you trust Jesus enough with that kind of sacrifice to say, tell me, to, and we think we would, if Jesus walked in right now and said it. It's easy to say. So one point we have here is love of money can make you unfruitful for the kingdom. There's the parable of the sower. Uh, the guy's going out and he's sharing the gospel as compared to seed being thrown down on all these um, different soils. So if you keep your place here and you go to Matthew 13, this is the Jesus telling the parable of the sower. There's, there's like 40 parables, and if my, if my source is correct, uh, like 11 of those involve money in some way. Jesus talks about money a lot. Not because he's trying to get people to give it to him, but because he's trying to get people to stop being in love with it. Matthew chapter 13, verse 7. He's telling this parable of the sower that's throwing the seed. In verse 7 he says, Some of that seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. So you got, it's growing, but then there's these thorns that grow up, and it chokes it out, and it's like, eh, if you ever try to grow something, you know how that kind of thing can happen. And so then Jesus explains to his disciples, you know, what does he mean by that? So if you go to verse 22 in Matthew 13. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So the love of money, the deceitfulness of riches, it's called here, and don't mistake the fact that everybody in this room, <laughs> yeah, everybody in this room 
comparatively, has great wealth and riches. Okay? I mean, maybe compared to some other people we don't, but compared to a lot of other people we do. So we have enough money that we can say there is the possibility that we have to deal with the deceitfulness of riches. And what it says that can do is choke the word and it prove unfruitful. So we have to be very aware of that and we have to be very careful of that. And then secondly, the love of money can keep you from Christ. So if we look at, at Matthew chapter 6, because we're all go also going to see there is a connection between fear and the love of money. So it can keep you from being fruitful for the kingdom of God. It can keep you actually from Christ, and there is a connection between fear and the love of money. So if you look at Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for your... Now, I should have said this from the beginning. Since this is easy to fall into moralism, and since the Bible says so much about money, and it would be very easy for me to misrepresent some of that stuff with the way I think about things, uh, we're going to look at a lot of scripture. So we're going to let the Bible speak to us. So read along, listen to, open your heart to this. Be aware this is the word of God to us. And this is Jesus speaking on the... Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Treasure. <laughs> You know, it's just like, so what do you picture when you think of a treasure? I think a buried treasure is a chest. There's all kinds of stuff hanging out of it. There's just money and pearls and all kinds of stuff. So if that's what you're after, and that's where your heart is, that's where your treasure is, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So you can't see. We have these blind spots we don't understand. He's talking about in the context of our treasuring other things. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So you're going to serve God? Yeah, how am I going to do that? And I've heard people tell me that the way they're going to serve God is they're going to get rich first, then they'll have all this money, and now I'll be able to serve God. And it's like, yeah, but the way you're talking about trying to get rich is not by following God. I will follow and serve him with all this money I'm going to get. And it's like, we're all we're such hypocrites and liars. You just want the money. And then you want to follow God. God doesn't need your money. God does not need your money. Okay? It, it, if you think God needs your money, you, you, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> so it, it's a mess. Here's the, here's the thing that Jesus is trying to tell us, trying to tell you, you don't need your money. That's tough. Because you're going to say, and I'm going to say, 
well, now I know what you mean, but you got no, no, no. Just listen to what Jesus says and let it seep into what he's trying to say through that kind of thing and exactly what he tells us. He says in verse 22, I'm telling you, don't be anxious about your life. What are you going to eat or what are you going to drink or about your body? What are you going to put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Now, if you're thinking about your clothes and your house and your food and your possessions, you're missing his point. You're completely missing his point. He's saying... I'm going to take care of you. Now stop it. Stop it. Listen to me. Focus on me. Focus on God. You're so worried and anxious about what am I going to eat and what am I going to have? He's like, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All this will be added to you. And he's not saying go out and lay down in the ground and, and pray to God looking up at the stars and I'll send ravens to feed you and you won't have to worry about anything. The, the grass behaves the way the grass is supposed to behave. It follows the rules of how it was created. The lilies are there and they are the way God made them to be and they follow those rules. Mankind does not. We, we're to be made in the likeness of the image of God. We're to work, we're to toil, we're to have things, we're to do this stuff in a Christ-like way, seeking first the kingdom, not I've got to provide for myself because if I don't, and that's what he's saying is, you're so concerned and worried about what you're going to have that you're forgetting other things in verse 31. So don't be anxious saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So in Hebrews, God is our helper. We need not fear. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. So next book of the Bible, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt to him and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? And he said, why do you call me good? There's none good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So what he's going to say next is I have love for him. Okay? You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. What if Jesus said that to you? And I know our first thought in our heart is, well, he's not. And my answer to that is going to be, are you certain of that? Because I'm not sure. I don't know what we're being called to. But I know that if we love our stuff more than we love the kingdom, we're going to be quite unfruitful. So we need to make sure we have our hearts 
in the right place when it comes to these things. So then Jesus said, so then the, the guy looks at him disheartened. Interesting word. His heart has now been taken from, ooh, you hit me where I live. That's what he's doing. Jesus loves him. And now his, he's, he's, he's attacked his other lover. You know, it's like, I don't know, your wife shows up with another man. And it's like, you need to get rid of him. You know, what can I do? What can I do to make this up? Get rid of him. You know, get rid of him. Oh, <laughs> that's what he's done right for Jesus. Like, sell everything you got. Come follow me. Oh, because he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Okay. And Jesus looked around and said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Remember this, we have wealth. We have wealth. How difficult it will be to enter in the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why would they be amazed at that? I mean, we look at that. I mean, if there's one thing our world understands and hammers away at us is wealth and wealthy people are evil and must be possibly eliminated at least by us storming their gates, taking all their money and giving it to all the deserving people in the world. But when Jesus is talking, they thought wealth meant you're blessed by God. These are the cream of the crop. That's God must love them more because look at all the wealth and the goods they have. And we still actually tend to believe this somewhat. But he's saying, I'm telling you, it's the opposite. It is harder for a rich person to get in heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Now, whatever that put conjured in their minds, it is perfectly acceptable for us to think about a needle and a camel trying to go through it. Because he's saying there is a physical impossibility going on here. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said, then who can be saved if a wealthy person can't even be saved? Who even can be saved? And he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So it's impossible. That's how hard it is. Now you're going to see it's equally impossible for a poor person, but for different reasons. And so Peter, he begins to say, we left everything and followed you. We're the good guys here. We have done that. We, we actually did that. You said, follow us. We left it all. We followed you. And so Jesus looks at him and says, I know. I can't believe it. Man, you guys are, I, I look at you, and I'm just like, y'all are so awesome. I can't get over it. I can't get over how awesome you are. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there's no one who's left. He gets a little indignant with him. We think about what he just said. We left everything to follow you. No, you didn't. You're following everything. You abandoned nothingness, and you're following me. And you're going to sit there and tell me, we left everything and are following you. He says, there's been no one who's left house, brothers, sisters, mothers, father, children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel. So we can leave these things for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Now what you're going to hear next is, I've heard prosperity preachers say, see there, you're going to get a hundredfold back. What are you going to get? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Now Mark adds, with persecutions. Now they don't necessarily like that part, but you're going to get back all these things. Well now the apostles didn't. So either we're missing what Jesus is saying or Jesus is a liar or wrong. And so I think what we're doing is missing what he's saying. 
you're going to get back all these things, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, persecutions. You know, you're going to receive as a believer when you abandon these things for Christ. And it doesn't mean that anything that gets in your way of following Christ needs to be jettisoned, abandoned immediately. And we, we, we're very so self-concerned about our our anxious for our life that we it's very difficult for us to hear what he may actually be saying to us but what he does say anything you leave and give up for me you're not giving up anything you think you're giving up something that's giving you peace and life and hope and instead what you're doing is you're giving up something that's dragging you down it's like you're clinging to a life raft and it's it's actually made of lead and you're waiting for it to lift you up and it's like let it go the thing that you think is bringing you life is killing you but many who are first will be last and the last will be first so what about the pursuit of money is, is the pursuit of wealth wrong while we remember those who love money will never have enough we'll listen to some advice from Paul and so that we know another point is the love of money is a snare so turn to first Timothy chapter 6 verses 5 through 12 if you find any of the T's they're in alphabetical or numeric order first Timothy chapter 6 verse 5 chapter 5 sorry first Timothy chapter 6 verse 5 constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved in truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So he's talking about people here who think that, that uh, being godly is going to get them material wealth and riches. Um, there's a, a Shy Lin song, Christian rapper, and he says, um, if you come to God for money, God is not your God, money is. So be aware, be wary of what do you expect God to give you in repayment or as a result of your holiness um, six now there is great gain in godliness oh wait a second <laughs> with contentment think about what that means there's great gain in godliness with contentment being content with what you have which is what Hebrews is talking about if you are content with what you have I don't need anymore I'm content what if you lose it? Well, now you have to be content with what you now have. What if I lose that? Well, and you see how that works? Well, now you have to be content with what you now have. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Come and go to Katie, and you'll see people who don't have food, clothing, and shelter that are praising God. But those who desire to be rich, and there are those in Haiti who don't have food, clothing, shelter, and they desire to be rich, and they fall into a snare, just like we do. You fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, which is why in the midst of persecution, be very careful about the love of money because we've heard the term cancel culture. What happens when your little culture is canceled and you can't go to work, you can't have money, you can't get this, and you can't do that unless you kind of tone it down somewhat about your Christianity or maybe stop going to church or talking about it or something then what? Because if you're in love with money, it's going to be very difficult. I knew I was going to run out of time with these things. Um, money can also be used for good. Look at 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age. All right, that's us. Don't forget this. He's talking about us. He's not talking about people who are richer than us. He's talking about us. He's talking about you. As for the rich in this present age, charge them what? All right, here's your charge. Don't be haughty. What's that mean? Prideful. Don't, don't, don't lord it over people. Don't think you're all that. Don't be haughty. Nor set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. This is uncertain. There's an uncertainty to this. But set your hopes on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You are to do good. You are to be rich in good works. You are to be generous, ready to share, storing up treasure, therefore, for yourselves as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the call of the gospel to us. Money is not evil. The human heart is evil. Possessions are not evil. The human heart is evil. The socialistic, communistic, Marxist problem is that it denies that the human problem is the human heart. They think you can get rid of possessions, you can get rid of money. Those are the things that make people evil. It's the lack of something. No, it's not. It's the human heart. Put us, put man in any situation, and he's going to find a way to make it worse. There's not going to be a utopian type of society where suddenly I'd like to teach the world to sing and give the world a Coke and live in perfect harmony. The capitalistic problem is also the human heart. Greed is not good, despite what some have said. Greed is not good. God in his providence has called people to work, to save, to be generous, to give. And these things are not possible without the means of free market exchanges. So just, it is a tool. Money is a tool to be used for God's purposes. But once it gets a hold on you where you think you can't live with it or without it, then you're done. So much more left. We might do a part two. Deuteronomy says when you come into the Deuteronomy 8, uh, 11 through 20, when you get into the, the, the land I'm giving you and you see that I'm blessing you, don't think it's your hands that did this. Don't say, look how awesome I am. Don't look at your wealth and prosperity and say, I am awesome. I don't need God. Look what I can accomplish. Psalm 62. Go look at this real quick. Psalm 62, 9 through 10. Psalm 62, ouch, Psalm 62, 9 through 10. Wealth and poverty can both be curses. 62, 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go, 
They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no hope on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And that's what's hard to do. Don't set your heart on them. The next book of the Bible is Proverbs. It says a lot about money. We're just going to look two places. 11.28 and 11, Proverbs 11.28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So if you're trusting in riches, you're not righteous, and you will fall. And then Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So give me neither poverty nor riches. Now, if we had time, we'd go to Philippians, well, Ephesians 4 25 through 28. Um, you should probably read that. If you, he who steals, let him steal no longer, but labor with his hands so that he might have something to give to people. So reverse that. Stop stealing from people and go to work so you can have stuff to share with people. So we're supposed to work. We're supposed to share. We're supposed to have our property, our goods are for the good of others. We think of others as more important than ourselves anyway. So that's what we do with our goods is help our fellow man. And then Philippians 4, 10 through 14 has this famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So can you jump off our roof of a building? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about I can go through very difficult times. I can go through extremely good times. I can suffer the loss of everything I have, and I can have a whole bunch of stuff, and I can handle it all because I've learned a secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We have to have Christ to strengthen us in our wealth. We have to have Christ to strengthen us in our poverty. We must have Christ in our good times. We have to have Christ in our bad times because wherever we fall on that graph, we are going to sin. Or they either think, I'm going to forget you because I have so much, or I'm going to start stealing and lying and cheating because I don't have anything. So what he's praying is, just keep us in that little sweet spot where I have enough because I know where my heart is and where it goes. So we had to be very careful. So to close Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? Love of money and a fear of man go together. But if you have the Lord as your helper, we don't have to worry. So you want to change the country, change your heart. That's where we start. Only God can do this. Give yourself to him. Trust him with your obedience. Follow him. Do what he says. Trust him. Don't fear man. Godly love seeks to give. Worldly love seeks only itself self-serving purposes, but God gave. This is how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son so that the believers in him would not perish and have everlasting life. He gave. Let's pray. Father God, you gave yourself, your son, 
he left all the material, all the, all the riches of heaven and glory to come be with us so that we might be able to have it all one day in heaven. We should help us to have treasures in heaven to realize that this time is so short. That we're to live for your good and your glory because you are for us. So who can be against us? And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.